Father, may we truly be ready for when your Son comes. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. In your Bibles, Luke 12. We all spend a lot of time in our days waiting. I think back to times just this past week where you found yourself waiting for what seemed like an exceptionally long amount of time. Spent a, long, a lot of time here in Mobile waiting for green lights. You're on Airport Boulevard and you hit like every single light and it takes you an hour to get from one end of it to another. Or I'll have this experience this week. I've got a dentist appointment tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Like what a weird time in the evening. But I don't know, just judging from my experience at the dentist, I, I don't know that I have an expectancy that I'll walk in there and boom, they'll be like doing the filling right then, right? We, we wait for the dentist. We wait for the doctor. You wait for your prescription at Walgreens. You wait for meetings to start and you wait for meetings to end. Can I get an amen on that? You wait for tax returns to process. You wait for family to come and visit. You wait for phone calls. You wait for your room at the hotel. You wait for the weekend. We spend a lot of time waiting and waiting in lines at Walmart and waiting for the next register to be open and waiting for the shelves to be restocked and waiting for your Amazon package to come. There is a lot of waiting that we do in life. And you know, waiting can bring the worst out of us. Um, I had an experience this past week where I was waiting for a room in a hotel, and I was just getting so frustrated, and I was not, I don't know, it wasn't like the godliest uh, I've ever been in my life, we'll put it that way, you just get frustrated and impatient, and oh, why isn't this happening, and why aren't things going on my timetable? The longer we, we wait, often the more antsy we can get, right? Has anybody ever been there where you've been waiting for something, you've waited so long, you're just like, you know what, I'm leaving. I've been, they said 15 minutes for the, for the table at the restaurant, and I've been here for about an hour. I think we're going to just go down to KFC today. Uh, we've all been there, haven't we? There comes a point where you wait so long, you kind of come to the conclusion that it's just not worth the wait. The thing I'm waiting for may never happen, or it's not worth waiting. Well, the same reality comes when we begin to consider our wait for the return of Christ. And that's what our text is about today. It's addressing the great wait, the wait for Jesus to return, the, the, the wait for Jesus to come back. And we've sung about that today. All of our hymns today have been about the one day he's coming, oh glorious day, and how long ere we shout the glad song, Christ returneth, and Lord haste the day that our face shall be sight. Remember where we're at in Luke, as we come into Luke 12. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Really all of Luke 10 through Luke 19, is sort of coming into slow motion as Jesus moves his way to the cross. And as he goes, he is preparing the disciples for the coming cataclysm, right? The, the fact that he's going to be arrested and rejected, and he is going to be crucified and buried, and he's going to rise again and ascend to the Father. And so this is a crucial time of training for the 12 and for the other disciples, as in short order, they're going to be serving Christ and representing him between his ascension and his return. So he's preparing the disciples for this. He's acknowledging and recognizing that after his death, after his resurrection, he's going to go away for a while. And they need to be focused and waiting and busy until he comes back. And that's where we are. We find ourselves between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Between the already of salvation has been won and we have forgiveness, but we're not to glory yet. Right? Jesus has ascended, and he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, and he's ruling and reigning from David's throne in heaven. But we're waiting for the day that he comes back to exert that rule and reign on this earth, for him to wrap up all of the promises that he has made in Scripture, for him to really finally establish the kingdom in all of its glory, the kingdom that he inaugurated to be fulfilled. Now, the return of Jesus is not a minor theme in the New Testament. In fact, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament Jesus' return is mentioned or alluded to at least 318 times in 260 chapters. Every book in the New Testament, except for Galatians, which has got a narrow focus, and the very short letters of 2nd and 3rd John, mentions the return of Jesus. Jesus himself spoke often of his return. He mentions it here. In fact, the entire section of Luke chapter 12, the, 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 the coming of the end and his return looms over it, where he talks about earlier, there's going to be a day of judgment, and words that you utter will be, will be shouted from the rooftops, and will you be ashamed, if you're ashamed of me now, then the Son will be ashamed of you then. While the Bible is not clear about everything that we would like to know about end times, like the Bible doesn't explain to us what every symbol in the book of Revelation means. 
The Bible does not even clearly tell us when things like the rapture happens in regards to the, to the, to the tribulation. We have sort of ideas of what we might think. Listen, we're not clear on all those details, but what we are clear about is that Jesus is definitely going to come back. Simply a question of when and whether some events might happen first, whether he comes back and then there's a tribulation, or there's a tribulation and then he comes back. The point is, he is coming back, and we should live like that is a reality. This is a key Christian Bible doctrine. So as we come to Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, here's the point we must get. We've got to be ready. We must be ready for the return of Christ. Follow along as I read here in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, for their master, when he will return from the wedding. And when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and shall uh, make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house, the, uh, the homeowner, had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all, okay, for us or for the crowds, for the saved or for the lost? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, when his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. And shall begin to beat the men's servants and the maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. He that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given... Of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of them, they will ask the more. Very simply, Jesus commands us to be ready for his return. And you say, why should I be ready? Right? Like, it's been a long time. 2,000 years plus that we've been waiting. Maybe this isn't going to happen. Maybe another 2,000 years. Why not just focus on other things? Let me give you three reasons why you and I must be ready and expectant. The first reason that Jesus gives us is this. We must be ready because his coming is certain. His coming is certain. It's, it's promised. Verses 35 to 38 really hit this note. Calling the disciples to be ready, to be expectant, because the coming, the return of the master is certain. Now, he gives us a parable here. He gives us an illustration. He says the, 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 the return of Jesus is like a, a master who's gone off to a wedding celebration. And the servants are meant to keep the house and be ready to welcome him and greet him and have everything ready when he returns. He said, now, what's the big deal here? We, you know, we go to weddings, and it's like, hey, it's 2 o'clock on Saturday. It'll be done about 4. I'll be back Saturday night. That's not how weddings were in the ancient world. We're talking about a wedding feast, a wedding celebration that could last up to seven days. Like, it could go for a long time. And, and, and so it's not, it's not a question of I'll be gone here and I'll be back here. It's sort of I'll be gone, I'll be back sometime. And the servants are tasked with... Hey, when I come back, you need to open the door as soon as I get there. Everything needs to be ready to go. The, you know, the crops need to be taken care of, and the garden needs to be weeded, and the house needs to be clean. Things need to be set in order for the return of the master. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, he gives us an illustration, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves liken to men that wait for their master, their Lord. Notice that's a lowercase l. This is this illustration from the ancient household where you've got a master and you've got servants who help run the house. And when he shall return from the wedding, when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. So the, the language of verse 35, let your loins be girded about, this is the idea of gird up your loins. So imagine you're wearing one of these big ancient robes and you're supposed to be out there working and doing stuff. All that fabric is going to get in the way. So what do you do? You take the extra fabric, you pull it up around and tuck it into the belt so that you can work without all, of this, all these robes getting in the way. We would put it this way. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. This is not just about, hey, be dressed nicely when he comes back, but be dressed for service. This is about action. 
So when we wait for the certain return of Jesus, this is not just passive waiting like, okay, is he coming back? Let's all just stand out there in white robes and put our arms up in the air and wait for Jesus to come. Or let's sit and read Fox News and try to interpret the signs and be like, is he coming now? And sort of contemplating, uh, just contemplating current events and thinking, when's this going to happen? That's not what we're meant to be doing. We're meant to be actively serving. That's what verse 35 is describing. In fact, Peter, who was listening to this, I think this image really caught his attention because over in 1 Peter, go there with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, he uses this exact same illustration, 1 Peter chapter 1. The first part of the chapter, he's talking about the the future guarantee of our final salvation, of what God's going to do in the future, his return, our glorification, our being with him. But notice what he says in verse 13, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, in light of everything that this, this doxology before has said, because of the guarantee of future salvation, gird up the loins of your mind... So he's saying, okay, this, this, this preparing is not talking about literal clothing, like we need to be wearing robes and girt, but he's saying this is a mental, be mentally ready, be mentally sharp, be sober, okay, so be, 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 have your mind clear, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're confident that it's going to happen. It is going to be here. Here's grace that's coming to you from the promises of God. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but here's what it means to be ready. So I want to be ready for the return of Jesus. What do, what do I need to draw a big chart and have arrows and figure out when this is going to be and try and do some numerology and figure out who the beast? No, here's what we do. But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So in other words, being ready, you say the return of Jesus is certain. Being ready means this, pursue holiness with all of your heart. Pursue godliness with all of your soul. Go to war against sin. Be mentally ready. Go to war against sin. Back to our text in Luke. So let your loins be girded about. You're you're ready for service. You're ready to go to war against sin. Verse 36 says you're going to be like people who are waiting for their Lord. Now, when we hear waiting, we tend to have that sort of passive idea. I'm just waiting in line, and I'm going to take the next step and the next step in the queue. The idea of this word working, of working, of waiting, rather, is to receive favorably, to look forward to, to wait for. It's the idea of anticipation. So it's not just, let me pass the time, let me go get a good book or scroll Facebook while I'm waiting. But the idea is I am expecting, I am anticipating his coming. There is a note of hopefulness and expectancy, and I'm looking forward to it. So this is not a, oh man, I'm dreading for the you know, school to start back up or for the final exam. But this is a looking forward to summer break, not a dreading final exams. So why do the servants actively wait? Why are they, they, they serving and they're dressed for service and you're going to war against sin? Why do we do this? Precisely because the return of the master is certain. Think about this, if the light never turned green, like it was broken, it was just permanently red, you wouldn't sit there and wait for it. You'd, you'd run the thing, right? If the dentist never showed up, you'd be like, I'm not going to bother going. It's precisely because we believe and trust that the thing we're waiting for will come about and that it is worth waiting for, right? It is worth waiting for. We anticipate. Jesus' return is certain. A couple of the hymns that we sang today went through the gospel. So one day starts with, you know, when, when heaven was filled with his praise, the sin was as black as could be. Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin. Then we go through the, the cross and then the resurrection and the return of Jesus. They're like links in a chain. It's because God was faithful in forging the links of our redemption that we can trust that the link of his return will come about. So Acts 1, verse 11, the angel says to the apostles, this same Jesus who you have seen depart will come back in the same manner. In other words, there is consistency. He kept his promises about his resurrection. He will keep his promises about his return. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. It says, just in the same way that God is trustworthy, my promise of my return is trustworthy. Revelation 1, 7 says, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. It is promised again and again in Scripture that Jesus is coming back. But not only that, look in verse 37, that when he comes back, it's a certain return and a certain reward. Blessed are those servants. Look look there in in Luke 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants. Now, three different times in, in these two paragraphs, we get this pronouncement of a blessing. 
He's not just saying do it or else, but he's saying there, there is blessing, there is reward. Now, the idea of blessed is, ah, bless your heart and God bless him. We use that word blessed in all these sort of shallow ways. The idea there is you, you are fulfilled and you are flourishing and you're even enviable. You, it, it will be well, it will be good for those servants. Like you will be the one that people will be like, man, I want to be that guy. Blessed are those servants. That word there, by the way, doulos, those slaves whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily, I say that he will gird himself and make them sit down to eat and will serve them. This is an incredible promise. Picture the scene. The master comes back late at night. They've been, verse 36, keep, keep your lamps burning. The fact that the, sir, that the master could come back at any time means you've got to keep the lamps ready. Because your job is to go out there and greet him with lamps, with torches, and escort him back home. So imagine the master comes back at, I don't know, 2 in the morning. Verse 38 says if he comes for the second or third watch. That's the Bible way of saying, if he shows up at 2.30 in the morning, you run out, you greet him, you bring him in, you open the door. He says, he'll be blessed. So picture the scene. Here's the master with a beaming smile and laughter in the household as he returns. And then he does something absolutely shocking. He sets aside his robes. And he dresses himself like a servant. He says, hey, servants, you guys sit down. I'm going to cook dinner for you. Now, that to us, like, oh, cool. Yeah, we know Jesus did that at the Last Supper. We get that illustration in John 13 that he sets aside his garments and he washes the disciples' feet. But for a master in an ancient household to serve the slaves, what you have to understand is in in Roman culture, the, the master owned his slaves. They were his property. He could do with them and to them anything that he wanted, and there would be no repercussions. If they dared rebel against him, you know, the punishment for rebellion was crucifixion. Uh, for a master to come along and say, I'm going to serve the slaves, was unheard of. This would have been, like, staggering to these disciples. But the master, of course, represents Jesus, will come and serve and deliver the, the meal and be the one to wait on the table. Is staggering. Now, this is all the more staggering when we consider what Jesus says over in Luke 17, where he, he gives us another illustration, making a different point, where he says, okay, if the master comes in after the servants have worked all day and says, make me dinner, this is their duty, right? This is not something that they deserve. This is pure grace. This is pure generosity. Do not think of rewards as wages that you earn. Sometimes we get this idea as Christians that like, okay, I'm saved by grace, But then if I want rewards in eternity, that's sort of a matter of a quid pro quo. I do things for God. He gives me rewards in heaven. No, no, no. We do not deserve the rewards. You understand that, right? We we are sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath. And anything less than wrath is better than we deserve. To reward us on top of that is incredible. This picture of a meal, of a banquet, ties into this imagery throughout Scripture of the Messianic kingdom being like a banquet. We get it in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, where he talks about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, or Luke 13, 29, just over a page or two to, to your right. They shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. That idea of sitting down is sitting down to eat, of reclining at the table. Heaven is pictured like this feast. Verse 38 in our text if you shall come in the second or third watch, blessed are those servants. He's, there's even a recognition. You all stayed awake until 2 in the morning until I got here. I'm going to recognize your service and your sacrifice. Beloved, listen, nothing that is done for Christ will go unrewarded. Every sacrifice, every act of service, every act of obedience that no one ever noticed, he notices and he will reward. It is worth it. In light of that, we could say with, uh, with David Livingston, I never made a sacrifice. And compared to the glory and the joy that is ours, what is this little act of service that we do for Jesus? Heaven will be a place of eternal joy, of peeling laughter, of unending pleasure, a never-ending feast. It's like the party that never comes to an end. It's happy worship and delight in God, and he's the worship of our praise. Now, what makes heaven so glorious? It's not that we get to go see all of our friends, but we will see our friends. So we get to see Christ, right? He's the glory of Emmanuel's land. He's the one that we get to see. If you're you're looking forward to heaven, let me just be very blunt with you. If you're looking forward to heaven simply because you will get to see family members or simply because you'll get to walk on the streets of gold, you're missing the Bible's emphasis on heaven. You're, You're, in fact, giving into an idolatry that makes it all about you. Heaven is not all about you. It is all about Jesus. 
It's not like a big cracker barrel in the skies where we'll sit around playing checkers on rocking chairs all the time. No, it is an eternal worship and gladness and joy in Jesus that will, will get greater and greater every day of eternity. So the emphasis here in verses 35 to 38 is we must be ready and watching and eagerly anticipating his return precisely because it is certain. What a thought that the return of Jesus is certain. Here's a second reason. Be ready because it's coming not only is certain, but because it is unannounced, because it is surprising. Look at verse 39 now. We change illustrations. Jesus will regularly change from one illustration to another, and we're not to read too much into that. Okay? Some people try to over sort of uh, exegete, over-explain these illustrations, and this represents that, and this represents this, and the door is a picture. But the point here is quite simple. Verses 35 to 38, hey, be like people who are waiting for the master to come back. Verse 39, now he changes the illustration to say, hey, you're going to be like a homeowner who's being on the guard against a thief. Verse 39, and know this, that if the good man of the house, the homeowner, had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Last time I checked, people who are going to do home robberies, don't send you a little email ahead of time and be like, hey, would 2.30 this morning be a good time for me to swing by and steal your, your TV, Right? They wouldn't be like, hey, when are you going to be out? Uh, could you just leave the door open for me? It would just make it way easier if you just kind of leave the light on, leave the door open so I can go swipe the guns out of your gun safe. That's just not how thieves work, right? They, they show up when you don't expect it. They don't announce that they are coming. And so what do you do? You put in a burglar alarm, right? And when you're gone, you set the burglar alarm, and so there can be this announcement if the thief shows up. What do you do? You lock the door out of vigilance that, hey, we know that there's bad people in our world, and we don't live in a sinless society. Uh, and so you, you lock the door and you set the burglar alarm and there's just a, a general state of vigilance that, hey, somebody, if somebody did try to break it, we, we've taken some precautions. So if the, if the homeowner knew when exactly the thief was coming, if the thief had sent him advance notice, okay, you know he's coming at 2.30, I'll go to bed, I'll set the alarm for 2.15 and sit out in the living with the, with the shotgun and wait for him to come. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying in the same way that a thief comes unannounced, so I will return unannounced. Jesus is not going to send all this advance notice be like, guys, on May 25th, I'm coming, so y'all be ready. Like, the rest of the time, you don't have to be ready, but you only need to be ready then. So what's the implication? Be ready all the time because it could happen any time. That's the implication. Now, this illustration of Jesus coming like a thief really, I think, caught hold of the imaginations of the New Testament writers. 1 Thessalonians 5, listen to how Paul uh, thinks of this. Verse 1, he says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves perfectly know that the day of the Lord so cometh as what? A thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. We get it in 2 Peter 3, the, the text that Isaac read for us. He says, You know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. In Revelation Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says this, Behold, I come as a thief. Behold, or, or blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Again, over and over again, John uses the illustration. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Coming like a thief. You don't know exactly when he's going to return. So the implication, verse 40, Be ye therefore. So when you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Because Jesus is coming back like a thief, because he's not announcing and buying out a bunch of billboards, telling everybody the date. He says, always be ready. Which, by the way, if you run into someone who's trying to set the date, you've got a false teacher. Like, real simple, right? Jesus explicitly says, it's going to be when nobody expects it. So if somebody's expecting it, they're lying to you, and you just need to quit listening to them. Uh, so there's people out on the radio and on the Internet who are running these weird-looking blogs who are going to be like, buy, my, buy my, you know, my, 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 my little bomb shelter and these, these meals that you can eat because I know when Jesus is going to come back. Um, especially if there's money involved, you've got a false teacher on your hands. So the implication is be ready all the time. We have sort of in our American mythology the Minutemen, right? Remember Lexington and Concord, and they had their guns ready, and they're called the Minutemen because they needed to be ready at a minute's notice, and when Paul Revere comes galloping through town, you know, the British are coming, they grab their muskets and go out to the Lexington Green. It probably wasn't quite as awesome as that. But the basic contours of the story are true. They were ready to defend their, their homes and defend their, their rights, and Paul Revere and other people came through. 
uh, probably not at a gallop. Uh, but the point being, they had to be ready at any time to grab the musket, grab the powder horn, and be ready to defend themselves. Um, I don't know if we still use these missiles or not, but one of the missiles that was used during the Cold War was the, the Minuteman missile that was ready at any time if a nuclear strike came to, to respond. That's the idea. Be ready, at, be ready for his return all the time. Now, why does Jesus come back at a time? You think, why not just tell us when you're coming back so we can really get our act together? Because he wants us to be faithful all the time, not just when we know he's coming. So if the health inspector says, hey, guys, I'm swinging by to check out the kitchen Tuesday, 10 a.m., you'll do a quick clean like Tuesday morning. But what the, what's the point of the health inspector coming by is to see what do you actually do when nobody's watching, right? Not just when the health inspector is there. So they do surprise inspections, right? They, they show up when, when, you're not, when you're not expecting it to be like, so what do you do when you don't know I'm coming? Oh, you leave the meat out overnight. That's not a good thing. Or you're not washing your hands after sneezing and then going making people's burgers. That's gross. And you get a fine for that kind of thing. Jesus wants to see what we will do in his absence when he's not, you know, sort of there and we're, oh, I better get my act together. He's watching. He could return tonight. He could return today. If you knew for sure that Jesus were going to be coming back to tonight at 11 p.m., how would you live? Okay. Are there people that you would be like, I need to get the gospel to them before, because he could come back tonight at 11 p.m.? Or, man, there's this relationship that is, Ruined that I need to go reconcile this. Or, uh, man, I need to be digging into the word and, and developing my walk. There's a sin that I need to deal with. Jesus is saying, live like that all the time. The imminence of his return, the fact that it could happen so suddenly and so surprisingly, requires the constant vigilance of his people. You see, it's so tempting for you and I to live like this is all there is, and he's going to come way, way, way in the future. Let's just kind of sit back, put our feet up, and enjoy life. We can be like the, the farmer in the story we saw a couple weeks ago. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? This is what it's all about. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. And we give in to materialism, and we give in to worry, and we give in to hypocrisy, all the things that chapter 12 has been talking about. If we wanted to summarize the warnings in Luke 12, it's this live in light of eternity, right? Don't, don't be a hypocrite because the day is coming that every secret is going to be exposed. Don't live in fear and in shame because Jesus is going to come back, and those who are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of them then. Don't live with a short-sighted materialistic framework because there is eternity that is beckoning. The more we can develop this eternal perspective, this eternal mindset, the more we can drive out anxiety. We can drive out materialism. It ought to be our prayer that God would help us to live in light of his return. You know, Jesus actually gives us a way to do this. When you pray, pray, my, your, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What if we were praying thy kingdom come every day? Like, we want the kingdom to advance uh, the here and now, but also we want the kingdom to descend and for his return to come. What if we were praying every day, even so come, Lord Jesus, I, I want you to come on, to develop that longing, that awareness that it could be today provoking thought. Simply put, we live life on the edge of eternity. We live life on the precipice of the age to come. We stand on the threshold of heaven. So how should we live? How should we live? Live that way. Be ready because his coming will be unannounced. It will be surprising. It could be any time. But now we get a third reason. And this picks up this next paragraph in verse 41. If you've got a Bible that divides into paragraphs, it probably divides it right here. Peter, as he's wont to do, wants to speak. He wants to say something. He's the, he's the kid in the class who, whenever the teacher's teaching, always has a question but doesn't raise his hand. Uh, Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable to us or even to all? Now, just a reminder, back in chapter 12, verse 1, it says there was a multitude gathered together innumerable people insomuch they trod upon one another, and he began to say to his disciples, first of all, so there's this huge crowd of people that are literally walking all over each other, trying to listen to Jesus, trying to see Jesus. He's got the, uh, the, got the 12 who are sort of ringing him, who are close by, that he's speaking primarily to them with the crowd overhearing what he's saying. So Peter asks actually a pretty reasonable question. Okay, is this just for us, just kind of our little group? Or are you speaking to the multitudes? Is this for the, the saved or is this for the lost? And Jesus does not directly answer the question, but what he does say is, Peter, disciples, you need to be ready for my coming because my return will be consequential. 
What I mean by consequential is there are major consequences, positive and negative, when I return. There are rewards for those who are faithful, for those who are believing. And there is retribution. There's judgment for those who are not believing. It says you need to be ready. So verse, verse 41, you speak this parable to us, even to all. Verse 42, and the Lord said, Who then, who therefore is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. So he picks up again on this illustration of the household. In the household, there is the, the master, the, the, the owner, and there are the slaves, right? And there's also the family members. But what would often be the case is one of those slaves would be appointed as steward. He's sort of a slave over the other slaves. And his job is sort of to be, I don't know, we think of a, a chief of staff or an overseer or a supervisor. He does not own the business, but he oversees the management of the business. That's what the steward is. He's the steward. He's the one who rules over the house, representing the interests of the owner. So Jesus brings this illustration of about a, a faithful steward who does a good job managing the master's property versus an unfaithful who robs from the master. That's what's going on here. So we see here in verses 42 and 43, we see this, or 40, 42 rather, we see the stewardship that is given. He asks, okay, who's the faithful and wise steward? Okay, that's what you want, a steward, according to, to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, it says it's required of stewards that they be found, what, faithful. People that, you, that, are, that are trustworthy. Now, faithful can have kind of two directions on it. It can be the master sees the steward as faithful, or the steward himself is full of faith. In the master. And I think both are going on. I think there's sort of a, a, a two way street here. Yes, the steward is faithful, he's trustworthy, but he is also full of faith and trusting in the master. Because as we will see, the unfaithful steward does not believe the master, right? He's like, ah, he's not coming back, he's delayed, I might as well just sort of run this thing like it's my own. Whereas the faithful steward says, no, I really believe that the master is going to come back and I'm going to act like it. A basic differentiation between these two is one believes and the other doesn't. So he says, verse 42, who's going to be made sort of the, the ruler? Who's going to be appointed over the, over the household to give them their meat in due season? So what would the steward do? Well, he's supposed to, like I mentioned, represent the master's interests. He's appointed over all the other servants. He's a slave set over the other slaves. He's tasked with running the household, with doling out the paychecks, so to speak, with making sure the bills are paid and everyone's taken care of in this context to make sure everybody gets their portion of food. So there's a certain amount of food, make sure everybody gets what they need taken care of so the house can be run well. And in this sense, this has unique application to the twelve. They would be appointed leaders over the church of Jesus Christ. They would be given the task of feeding the sheep. Remember Peter? says. Jesus says to him, if you love me, then feed my sheep. In 1 Peter, he says, the, the elders, the pastors must feed the sheep. So there's that going on. In Titus 1 and verse 7, we're told that the elders, that the, the bishops, the pastors, are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. So this idea of stewardship has unique application to spiritual leaders. To spiritual leaders, you've got the job of taking care of Christ's people. But I think it would be a mistake to say this only applies to people who are in positions of spiritual leadership. Because 1 Peter 4 and verse 10 tells us that every Christian has a spiritual gift. They have a stewardship. And they are to steward that accordingly. So yes, it is true. Some people are given greater influence and responsibility in the kingdom of God, in the, in the leading of God's people. But all of us, understand this, all of us have been given the gospel to steward. All of us have been given a spiritual gift to steward. All of us have relationships to steward. All of us have money to steward. All of us have time to steward. That we are to manage well because it belongs to God. And this is the key. The faithful steward recognizes, hey, everything that I've got here is not really mine. Right? It belongs to the master. The unfaithful steward acts as if it's his, and he goes and starts beating the servants and eating all the food and getting drunk. So which are you? Do you look at the resources in your life as yours for your enjoyment to do with whatever, or do you say, this is all God's? And I'm not just talking about ministries in the church. I'm talking about the money in your bank account. I'm talking about uh, the slots on your calendar that you fill with stuff. It all belongs to God. And what a Christian does is he believes the master is going to return so strongly that he says, I'm going to live like that. So what happens to those who live like that? 
who say, everything I have belongs to him. I'm going to try to steward it the best I can. By the way, none of us steward it perfectly, but we should steward it faithfully. Verse 43, blessed is that servant. Here we get this blessing again. Whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing of a truth. I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Now, some people have read verse 42 and 44 to be like, he makes him ruler, and then he comes back and says, I'm going to make you ruler. Like, hmm, that doesn't make, make a whole lot of sense. I think what's going on here is the idea that if you've been faithful in little, you'll be rewarded with much. Over in Luke 19, again, Jesus brings this up again. Jump over there with me. Luke chapter 19. Famous story where there's these servants who are given certain amounts of money to manage while the master is gone. Similar idea. Master's departed. People are left in charge to oversee the master's resources. And then the master comes back and he gets together with the servants to see what did they do with his stuff while he was gone. And the uh, first in verse 16 of Luke 19, uh, then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound has gained 10 pounds. Man, that's really good investment. He took the master's resources and multiplied it. He managed it well. He believed the master was coming, so he said, I want to make sure that his stuff is taken care of. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, thou shalt have authority over 10 cities. So he went from managing, say, you know, 10 bank accounts to managing 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five. So he too was faithful and, and, and managed it well. And he said unto him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here's thy pound, which thou hast taken. He didn't believe the master was coming back, was not faithful. So here's the idea. Uh, back in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus comes back, there will be rewards. And part of the reward, it seems, and I don't know exactly what this will look like, will be some kind of authority and stewardship in the kingdom of God. Uh, some kind of authority over, over cities. We know there's a new heaven and a new earth. We know there's a, a thousand-year millennial reign on this earth. This really only makes sense if there is that millennial reign on this earth. So there's this present temporary task that's described in verse 42 of our text back in Luke 12. And then there's this permanent eternal task that is described in verses 43 to 44. Now, don't think it'll be a drudgery. Oh, man, I get to heaven and now I've got a job to do. This will be horrible. No, the, the, the tasks that he gives to us will be tasks that we enjoy thoroughly, that we delight in. We will not be bored, but we will be able to steward this for his glory for all eternity. Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be rewards for those who are faithful. It will be worth it to be ready. It will be worth it to be faithful here and now, listen, in the little things. If I can impress one thing on your mind from this point, it is this, that it is the stewardship in the little things that make an eternal difference. See, we often think it's, it's the big moments of our marriage, and it's the big moments in church, and it's when I'm preaching a sermon or I'm doing something really, really important. But no, it's actually when nobody's watching that we show what kind of steward we are. Right? It's in the moments when you're, like, you're putting your kids to bed or the moments when there's a little bit of tension between you and your wife that we really get to see what's going on in our hearts. It's those little moments. It's those little opportunities. It's the going to work day in and day out. It's loving your kids. It's walking with Jesus through the ordinary days of life. So this is awesome, right? It takes the, listen, all of us live our lives in the ordinary. <laughs> like, yep, this Day after day, this is what it looks like. Jesus is saying faithfulness in those ordinary moments will matter eternally, right? So to quote Russell Crowe, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Very true, what we do in the little things echoes in eternity. But there's another sign to the, the consequentialness, if that's a word, of the return of Jesus. There's this positive dimension for those who are believers and are faithful. There's reward. But for those who are unfaithful and unbelieving, there is retribution. Verse 45, but if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and so we begin to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, will literally dismember him, and will appoint his portion with the unbelievers. It's pretty clear to me the guy in verses 45 and 46 is lost. Right? He's not, we have this idea sometimes, well, they're saved and lost, and then there's people who are saved who never do anything for Jesus. The Bible does not have that, that middle category. You're either believer or an unbeliever. We can be faithful or unfaithful. Believers are, are faithful. Now, we're not all as faithful as we could be or as fruitful as we should be. 
But all believers will be faithful to some degree. There will be fruit. There will be evidence that you're a genuine believer. It says, the guy here who doesn't believe the master is going to come back, doesn't trust the master, doesn't take him at his word, will be appointed a portion with the unbelievers. And Matthew adds here, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hey, that's hell. That's what we're describing here. There is retribution. So notice the characteristics of the unfaithful steward, who is actually an unfaithful rebel. First off, he doubted the master's return. Like, that's key. He delays his coming. This language is very similar to what Isaac read in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, in the last days there will come scoffers who will say, where is the promise of his coming? We're not, we're not just dealing with Christians who are struggling there. We're dealing with people who don't believe. They're scoffers. So he said, ah, the master's not coming back. He's been gone such a long time. So he doubts the master's return. He did not take the master's promise seriously. He truly did not believe that the master would return. Now, says he thought this in his heart. He's not broadcasting this to the other servants. He's just thinking this in his heart. You can be sitting in a church pew and saying to everyone, oh, I believe in Jesus, but in your heart, you really do not. You really think, hey, he's not coming back. That's just, that's, just a, that's just the opiate of the people. That's just what people think to make themselves feel good. Things are going to keep going as they've always gone. History is just going to repeat itself, and we're all going to die, and that's going to be it. That's what this master does. He does not believe. He does not love the master. He does not trust the master. He's the scoffer. Here's another characteristic, a second characteristic of this one who receives retribution. He abused the master's servants, verse 45. It says, he shall begin to beat the men's servants and the maidens. So those who are serving the master, those over whom he has responsibility. And again, if we think of the illustration here of spiritual leaders, have there not been instances throughout church history where there are people who are ostensibly in a position of spiritual leadership who are not actually saved, who abuse those under them? Oh, yeah, church history is full of that. We could probably look at a number of popes through church history who claim to be you know, Christ's representative on earth who were just getting rich on the thing. we got prosperity preachers today who are claiming to be spokesmen for, for Jesus and are simply building their own wealth on the backs of God's people. Rather than feeding the sheep, they are eating the sheep. They're beating the master's servants. After all, think about this. This naturally follows. If the master's not coming back, if Jesus is not coming back, if there is no judgment, if there is no heaven or hell, why does it matter how I treat people? Right? It really doesn't, I, I should treat people however I want. If there is no God, or if there is no God who actually is involved or who cares, this whole idea of like universal human rights and treating people with dignity has no basis. Right? So the, the, what, what is crazy to me is sort of the secular world today will go on and on and on about human dignity and individual rights and treating people well, which I'm like, amen, I agree with that. But you have ripped the foundation out from under it. You've cut the limb off on which you sit when you say that Jesus is not coming back. If there's no ultimate accountability, you might as well take advantage of the weak. If Jesus is not coming back, you might as well abuse people and manipulate people and do whatever you want. At least the, we could say this, at least this unfaithful steward is being consistent. He doesn't believe the master is coming back and he acts like it. A third characteristic, he steals the master's Property and prerogatives. Verse 45 goes on to say uh, that he begins to eat and to drink and to be drunken. Now, remember, this, this guy was supposed to feed the other servants. Instead, he takes all the food for himself to the point that he gets drunk. He's inebriated. But really what's going on, he's taking what belongs to the master. He's using it for himself. And more seriously, he's taking the master's prerogatives as his own. He said, I'm not, I don't want to be just a steward. I'm going to be the master. I'm going to do what I want to do. He's like the guy in the story from a couple weeks ago who's simply going after hedonistic pleasures. Now, the mention of drunkenness is, uh, I, think, I think, important because drunkenness leads to people, their, their senses being dulled and people just being passed out and, and, and sleeping. The faithful steward is to be alert. Alert and drunkenness are, are contrary ideas. I just read an interesting article that said uh, in Ukraine, as the war has been going on, there's been this nationwide ban on alcohol. They say, Why? So, well, because, you know, someone could attack at any moment, and you can't be drunk and be running out there with an AK-47. Like, really interesting, right? Like, drunkenness and trying to defend your country. Like, they don't go well together. Drunkenness and waiting for the master's return and being faithful they don't go well together. So, what is this illustration saying? This guy is completely out of it. He's not concerned about the master's return. He's not looking for it, and he's not acting like it's really going to happen. 
So what's the result? Verse 46, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. Again, the idea is going to be surprising and unannounced. At an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in sunder, and rightfully so. He has abused and beaten the other servants. He has, he has rebelled against the master and made himself the master. He'll be assigned a portion with the unbelievers. So you can either be faithful or you can be an unbeliever. Those are the choices here. Since the master shows up out of the blue, he catches the steward red-handed. And there can be therefore no cover-up and no doubt as to what's going on. The rebellious steward is banished with the unbelievers. Now, some people will say, yeah, but he's a member of the household. Doesn't this mean that he's a Christian? Well, if that's the case, we've got a situation where someone who's a Christian is losing their salvation and going to hell, which that doesn't fit with the rest of the New Testament. Others will say, well, maybe this being dismembered and appointed with the unbelievers is just sort of a picture of not getting the rewards you would have gotten otherwise. Well, that's a really strange way of saying you're not going to get rewards. Other people say, well, this is just purgatory, which that finds no basis in Scripture either. I think the, the best way to read this is to say, the first steward who's faithful is a believer, and the one who is unfaithful is an unbeliever. who gets the consequences. Over in Luke 13, Jesus makes a similar statement in verse 26. Verse 26, and he sh- shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. And he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and ye yourselves thrust out. There's coming a day of judgment. Now, this is sobering. This steward was in a place of prominence within the house. You can be a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church. You can be a leader in a church. You can appear to be very spiritual and very religious and go to hell from a church pew. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. It's a serious, sobering thought. It should make us all examine our hearts and say, am I the faithful steward or am I the unfaithful? Am I simply following Jesus ostensibly for what I can get out of it. That's what the unfaithful steward was doing. Or am I following Jesus because I love Jesus? Am I serving his people or am I abusing his people? Am I looking for his return or am I living as if it's never going to happen? It's quite a litmus test. Now, verses 47 and 48 end with this note about the the retribution that, in, in essence, it is going to be just. Okay, the one who knew what he was supposed to do and didn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. So he knew what he was supposed to, there will be a harsher judgment. And the one who goes on, it says in verse 48, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. There there will be uh, gradations of judgment in, uh, in eternity. Those with greater knowledge will face greater punishment. So just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there will be degrees of suffering in hell. God distinguishes throughout his word between intentional sins and ignorant sins. So there are people who could, who could legitimately claim, I did not know what the master's will was, and therefore they didn't do it. While there are others who know full well what the master requires, and they're like, I don't care to do it, the judgments will differ. Understand this, however, that the judgment will be certain regardless. There's judgment for all who failed to do the master's will, whether they knew it or whether they did not know it. According to Romans 1, no one's ignorance is absolute. So what about someone who's never read the Bible? According to Romans 1, there is the witness of creation. There's enough evidence there to show that there is a creator to whom I'm accountable, and then we live as if that's not true. He says, you're accountable for that. We have the witness of conscience to know what is right and wrong, and we live contrary to that. Ignorance is never absolute. Man always has the witness of creation, the witness of conscience. So he now concludes, for unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. To whom men have committed much, of them will they ask the more. Now here we are sitting in a church service, hearing the word of God. Many of you come week after week hearing the word of God. You live in a country that, you know, just while you're going through the the radio stations, you'll jump on, you'll pass by three, four Christian radio stations, some of which are teaching God's word. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Bible resources and books and teaching programs and blogs and websites, which tells me this, none of us can claim ignorance. 
None of us can stand before God being like, God, I didn't know what the gospel was. I didn't know what you required of me to repent and believe and to follow Jesus. Which means that if you are here today and you are not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, if you are not following him faithfully as, as, as the master, in a sense, in a word, if you are not saved, the judgment you will face on judgment day will be absolutely terrifying. You are in a more serious condition than the Canaanites who offered children on altars to Molech. You have the Bible, you have preaching, you have the church, we have the completed canon of Scripture. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, the writer of Hebrews asks. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And Jesus will come back. His coming is certain. It is certain. He is going to return. Now, it may be today, and it might not be for another 10,000 years, but he is going to come back. How then should we live? Well, Hebrews 10, 24 says that we should gather so much the more as we see the day approaching. You say, yeah, I believe Jesus is coming back. You know that means you should do? You should come gather with God's people even more frequently. It's really ironic to me that some of the people I know who are sort of the most caught up in trying to parse out, read the tea leaves, come to church like never. I just don't, don't, ever, don't ever need to go to church. I just sort of study prophecy on the Internet. No, the, the, the more we study prophecy, the more we should want to gather with God's people and provoke one another to love and good works. As Isaac read in 2 Peter, we should pursue holiness with all of our hearts and go to war against sin so that when Jesus comes, he finds us being faithful, following him. So Jesus is coming, it is certain. Do you believe it? Are you relying in the, on the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone to save you when he comes? Are you trusting? Well, I hope that I'll just kind of skate through somehow because I've somehow skated through most of my life. If Jesus is coming as certain, it should cause us to step back and say, am I confident in my forgiveness? His coming is unannounced. What if Jesus returned today? Would he find you living in faithfulness or is there sin that needs to be confessed in your life? Is there an urgency in your walk with him? Is there a vigilance over your purity, over your relationships? And his coming is consequential. Are you stewarding your time? Are you stewarding your resources? Are you stewarding your authority, your influence, your money? Are you living in harmony with your fellow believers, or are you spending your time kind of beating up on them? Beloved, the long wait will soon be over. And yes, evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse. The world will become more wicked and will plunge into a dark tribulation at some point in the future. But do you long for the coming of Jesus for Jesus' sake? Do you look at the second coming as just a, man, I don't like the way things are right now, so Jesus better hurry up and come. Or do you look for it because you really love Jesus? Those are two very, very different things, two very, very different hearts. One that says, man, life is hard, I want Jesus to come, and one that says, Jesus is awesome and glorious and I want him to come. Soon, beloved, the long wait will be over. That for which we have longed will be here, Jesus Christ Lift up your heads, redemption draweth nigh. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, may we be ready.